Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma, and happy Independence Day. Today is July 4th. I'm attorney Adam Hanson. I'm, in the, the, I'm not in the studio, but I'm joining you from abroad. Today I'm in New York City uh, with my family touring, but uh, we've got Sean with me today as well. Um, I'm also traveling, so we're both out of the studio doing this remotely, and it's working very well, and hopefully. All, yeah, and we also got our, our uh, favorite uh, radio uh, connoisseur, Cody Beeson, who helps us a lot, and he um, puts these things together for us and, and makes sure that uh, we sound the best that we can. I don't know how well he does. Uh, he's got a really tough job, but he's working his hardest to do that. Uh, but like I said, we wanted to wish you a happy Independence Day, and this is a, a great day today. Um, I hope you get out and you enjoy the weather. It's going to be a little warm, so uh, you should take take the time to get into the water and cool off or stay inside and, and do some fun things inside with your families. Um, I love Independence Day. It's one of those those things every year where um, I like to get together as, as much as we can with family and to celebrate the day that uh, we broke off from the, the great oppressor in Great Britain. And, uh, and I've been traveling all around. Um, we went, had the opportunity to go to, to uh, Philadelphia um, last week on Thursday and Friday and visit Independence Hall where the Constitution was actually, the Constitutional Convention was held and ultimately the Constitution was signed. And it's, it's just really a neat opportunity to uh, experience what happened so many years ago. These men who were, were kind of rogue, if you want to think about it like that, they weren't, they weren't men. That, this, what they did was just incredibly brave uh, to put their lives on the line and to go against the grain uh, for freedom for all of us. And we experienced that today. A lot of the, sh- the content today of our show is obviously going to, I say obviously because uh, all I've seen in the news lately since Roe v. Wade was overturned was how horrible that was, how Justice Thomas um, should, should uh, die a slow death because he's the evil to all the world. Uh, it's his fault that uh, Roe v. Wade got overturned, and, and this is what I'm seeing in the media. And so we, we thought it would be a great opportunity to actually discuss and read the opinion of Justice Thomas that ultimately overturned Roe v. Wade. As Sean and I were talking about this, uh, we were driving in the car back from Phoenix. We had to go to a legal conference uh, together. And as we were driving back from Phoenix, this subject came up and we were talking about it. And and I remember uh, as we were reading the opinion or listening to the opinion, I made the comment about uh, another decision when I was in law school that came out. And I remember at the time when I read through the, it was the gay marriage uh, decision in 2012, where um, it was a tax case from New York and there was a same sex couple. They were, they were going after the um, defense of marriage act marriages between a man and a woman. That's uh, that was in federal code until that case in 2012 where the Supreme Court says, no, that's unconstitutional. And so that was what made gay marriage legal across the entire United States. I remember reading that opinion thinking, and I was in law school at the time, going through constitutional law. I remember reading that opinion 
and I was incredibly confused because here I am in constitutional law class, and I'm reading about stare decisis, which is the legal term or the the doctrine of giving weight to the Supreme Court judgments that have happened in the past. You you give them extreme deference, and you start from there, and then you can work on uh, from that particular precedent. That's what we call stare decisis. Stare decisis. So if the Supreme Court's already come up with some sort of a test or some sort of a legal doctrine, then usually you'll uphold that. It, it, it's uh, not a given, and that's what Justice Thomas says in in this Dobbs case that overturned Roe v. Wade. It's not an absolute given, and there have been many times in the court where they go back and they revisit, um, and they don't hold true to stare decisis, but there's a test that they go through. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more as we get through this this case. But I remember reading, going back to my experience when I was in law school and I was reading that gay marriage case thinking, I don't understand where they're pulling this stuff because there was they're not making any constitutional arguments. It wasn't anything grounded in the Constitution. It, it's not explicitly said in the Constitution. It's not a given right. And it's not a class of individuals uh, like we've seen before that's been protected like um, it used to be, well, I say used to be, because it's kind of gray now. Well, since the gay marriage case uh, back in 2012, but it used to be that there were protected classes that were determined or dependent on what they called they the court called immutable traits. Immutable traits. What the court would say is it's it's nothing you can do about it. You're born with it, such as your gender. So male and female, so we can't discriminate uh, on basis of gender. We can't discriminate on basis of color of skin or race. These are things that people are born with that they don't have a choice. This is how they come to this world. And the court has protected those classes of individuals or those classes of classifications, let's say, those groups of immutable rights or immutable uh, characteristics. And, and so in the gay marriage case, they kind of took it a step f- further in saying, well, people, people are going to be put into this category and therefore they're protected as a right under our constitution to marriage. And it was a far stretch. I mean, the, the legal doctrine really didn't, it wasn't, in my opinion, it didn't hold any weight or it wasn't based on any previous cases. And they made a real far stretch there. And I was really confused and so as I, we were discussing this, Sean and I, on our way back from Phoenix, um, in this car trip that we took, I, I brought that up. And Sean said, yeah, it's like we look to the Supreme Court justices as knowing it all, you know, basically. And so what they say, you just kind of go along with it. And, and there have been bad opinions in the past. I would argue that Roe v. Wade was one of those opinions that really the court came, came into the legislative realm, meaning – we have a three-part uh, system here, or we're supposed to, where you've got the judicial branch that's separate from the legislative branch, which is separate from the executive branch, and they're all checking and balancing each other. And that was the design through our Constitution. However, what's happened, and Roe v. Wade is a great example of this, and that's why even both sides of the aisle would often say that Roe v. Wade was a bad decision. Now, the right of the aisle would argue why it was, in their opinion, a bad decision, and the left would argue why it was a bad decision, and they both had different reasonings why it was a bad decision, 
but they both agreed that it wasn't the best decision. And, and Justice Thomas alludes to that in his opinion, and we'll go through that in a minute. But when, when those types of things have happened during our life, lifetimes where the justices come out with an opinion and we all just kind of take it like, oh, well, they know better than we do because they're the smart ones, they're the ones up there. And that's kind of how we took Roe v. Wade. That's how we took um, Casey. That's how we took the gay marriage case in 2012. And we just kind of take it and say, well, they know better than us. But when you really look at those opinions, I, I'm really kind of confused because it's almost as if the court has an objective. They have their answer that they want to get to. And they use these ways of great language and reasoning to get to the result that they're looking for. But in reality, they don't start, in my opinion, with the actual Constitution. And that's what Justice Thomas is is uh, arguing in the in the Dobbs case that overturned Roe v. Wade. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But we thought it would be a great idea to just read some of the text because Justice Thomas, he doesn't speak in, in legalese. He speaks very plainly, and anybody can understand it. You might not know the history or the precedents that were coming before, but we'll help you understand that as we talk through it. But we, we thought it would be interesting to read it. What I loved about his opinion in Dobbs was he uses this phrase over and over again. He says, today we're overruling Roe v. Wade and Casey that were bad law. And he said, and he'll use this phrase, and we're returning the power to the people, returning the power to the people, returning the power to the people. Justice Thomas understands that the federal government's job is not to dictate to us what our our uh, rights are. He understands, like the founders did, that we are born with certain rights, and we are protected under our Constitution in the sense that we have the freedom to exercise those God-given rights that we're born with, and the federal government really just meddles or legislates when the court comes in and says, well, this is a given right to abortion, or this is a given right to the Constitution, it's baked into the Constitution that you you can um, marry another person that's the same sex. And what Justice Thomas is arguing is that, no, the Constitution is silent on those issues, and we need to advocate more for less government and more freedom to the people. Did this, did this actually get rid of abortion in the United States of America? No. But you'll hear in the mainstream media that it did, that when this case came out, Dobbs was decided and Roe v. Wade was overruled, that that's the end of abortion. And you have these uh, uh, pro-choice advocates that just scream from the rooftops how horrible this is. My first my first question was, when this all happens, is was, what do you what do you care? Are you planning to get an abortion? Are you? Uh, I, I don't understand the the impassioned battle cry that that the the pro the pro choice people have. Do you? Especially if it's a man, like you you guys are screaming from the rooftops. How dare you? It's about the rights of women. It's like what do you, what do you care? Like how does this affect you? How does this affect your daily life? I don't understand why a person would be so emboldened or impassioned unless. They planned on getting an abortion, and that's a really slim, I would argue, amount of our population. 
So I don't understand the, the, the battle cry here and the, the outrage that's, that's constantly brewing. And I believe it's just kind of stoked. The fires are stoked by the media and by um, different political entities in order to seed uh, discord in our, in our society in order for that person with an ulterior motive to either get elected for next cycle or get funding to their particular organization. Everything's got a motive. And that's the only thing I could see because really I could care less. I'm, I'm not going to have a baby in the future. Therefore, I'm, I don't really care if my state has on the books an abortion uh, prevention law like Mississippi did when they put in place this legislation that if you kill a, a, a fetus after 15 weeks, then you could be subject to criminal pen- penalties or uh, other such things unless there was uh, a circumstance in which that the, the, the life of the, the mother needs to be saved or there's some other condition that allows for the killing of that fetus in order to save the, the mother or other reasons, the exceptions to that 15-week rule. Uh, so I'm, I'm not in that boat, so I don't. it really doesn't affect my day-to-day life when I wake up with my family or go to work. And, and some people will say, well, you're just insensitive, you know? Um, how dare you? It's about my right, and I, I want to be able to, to have an abortion if I want to. Are you going to have an abortion? No. Well, well, but I, but I want to if I can. I mean, if I can, if I want to, kind of thing. It's like, well, well, I, I want to have a million dollars, but uh, it's not going to happen just like that, you know. So we've got to go to break. We'll be back, and uh, Sean's gonna, he's gonna point out some of his perspectives as well. This is Life, Death, and Law, five sixty AM, KBLU. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit YumaEstatePlanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and Law, 560 AM KBLU. And again, happy Independence Day. We're so excited that uh, we live in this nation and the freedoms that it provides. Uh, In the first segment, we talked a lot about uh, this recent case of of Dobbs, uh, where Justice Thomas talks about overruling Roe v. Wade and Casey, which were were um, cases that have been precedent for 50 years. Casey, not so much. That was done in the 90s, but Roe v. Wade obviously had been the, the court's precedent for many, many years and um, had 
constitutionalized, let's say, the right to an abortion. And, and basically what Judge Thomas said, and we'll get into this opinion in just a second, uh, he said that, no, the Constitution doesn't provide a right to an abortion that wasn't built in by our founders. It wasn't in our Constitution. Instead, what he argues is that the federal government should not be what they've essentially done in Roe v. Wade and Casey was continue to legislate from the bench. And this court's this court, the Supreme Court's role is not to legislate. Their role is to determine whether a law is constitutional or not. And he goes into the reasoning as to why those opinions were so bad, because they didn't even come from a constitutional basis. And so then he reviews this doctrine of stare decisis. Should we go back to Roe and build off of that, or should we question it? And he said, we should always question any stare decisis case. And the, the court actually has a a test to do that. Now, in the first segment, uh, we were talking over the break, Sean and I, and he said, I don't I don't know if you, like, it sounds like you're anti-gay when you're talking about the Ob- Obergefell case um, that that uh, constitutionalized or, or gave a right to gay marriage throughout the United States. And he's like, you need to be careful about that. And I said, well, that's not how I feel. And if that's the way it came across, that's not what I intended. What I'm, what I, that case, Obergefell, that uh, legalized gay marriage, what I'm arguing is, and that's what Justice Thomas goes on to say in his opinion, that we need to revisit that case because, uh, like I said before, I was in law school when that came out. I was actually taking constitutional law in law school. And when that opinion came out, I thought, this isn't how I've seen it done in the past by these justices. That opinion, Obergefell, uh, it, it just didn't, it didn't jive with constitutional precedents. And they're just kind of reaching. And like I, I mentioned before, Sean and I had this conversation as we're driving where it feels like sometimes the court will, they want to reach a result and then they just use these ways to get there. And Justice Thomas in, in this Dobbs case where he overrules um, Roe v. Wade, he says, no, we, we shouldn't be doing that as a court. We are the, the judicial branch. Our sole job is to determine whether this is constitutional or not. And that's what they did, saying Roe was not c- correctly decided. And uh, and so, Sean, you pipe in here. You tell me because uh, you mentioned you made that comment. Hey, I, I'm worried about our listeners and what you're saying, and and maybe it'll turn them off. I I want to be clear. I'm not anti-gay or any anti-gay marriage, anything like that. What I'm what I'm anti is the federal government making blank blanket uh, rulings for the entire nation, and especially the Supreme Court, because. With the Supreme Court, what we've done is we've got this independent um, political branch that is uh, able to understand, hopefully, and interpret and in, and uh, put correct um, application to the Constitution. And so its whole job is to hold, it, it hold sacred the Constitution and to make sure that any laws that are made, whether they're state laws or federal laws, that they do not uh, conflict with our constitutional rights. The Constitution was put in place not to give government power, but to restrict how much power the government had and to make sure that the people retained all other powers that were not explicitly provided to the government for the purpose of defending our rights, those rights principally being the right to life, liberty, and property. And so for me, it's a three-pronged test, and it's a fairly easy test to determine whether a law should be enacted or should not. And it's not I don't make an opinion as to whether or not I like the outcome of the law or not first and then find some reasoning to justify it. I first look at that three-pronged test. And the test is, 
does that law protect the United States citizens from being deprived of life, liberty, or property? If it, if it protects them, then yes, it's a justifiable law, and we got to see about uh, how strictly it needs to be enforced, and, and we go down that um, explanation after that. But so let's let's look at an example of gay marriage here. What is marriage in its basic form? It's a contract between people. Um, traditionally, right now in the United States, it's two people, but it hasn't always been. In fact, biblically and and historically through mankind, um, there's been uh, polygamy through with the marriage between multiple wives and. It's more historically between multiple wives and multiple husbands, but it has been multiple people engaging in this contract, and that is to share their lives with one another, share everything that they own, everything that they obtain. We live in a community property state, meaning everything that you acquire, um, all of your wages, um, any profit that you gain during marriage is owned jointly between the two spouses, between the people of the contract. So that's what marriage is, is a contract between individuals that they're going to be sharing things as they move on through life. And so traditional marriage is viewed as a contract between a husband and a wife to love one another, to support one another, to share all that they have. And uh, the Supreme Court said no. You can't limit that contract to a husband and a wife. A state must issue a license to uh, same-sex couples to have that same privilege of that same contract. Well, I, I say take it back even further. We don't need the government's permission to contract. In fact, in the Constitution, I think it's Article 1, Section 10, it states explicitly that no state shall uh, deprive the citizens of the right to enter into contracts. And there you go. The, the government doesn't give us permission for something I have a right to do. If I have a right to contract, I don't need permission from the federal government or the state government to do it. So the very fact that uh, we are required to get a, a marriage license in the beginning, I think uh, opposed that, that fundamental constitutional provision. And uh, so therefore, I think that individuals who are homosexual who want to share their lives together and uh, share everything that they own, go for it. Um, I have a moral and a religious opinion about that, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a legal opinion on that. And uh, so I think the same thing with a man and a woman. I think that a lot of people today, they get together and have a kid and, and own property together without entering into uh, a legal contractual marriage, and somehow that seems a bit backwards to me. I think that before you involve a third party, an innocent person, a child into this relationship, you ought to um, reaffirm to one another that you're going to stay together and you're going to be uh, a constant for this child and, and, and bringing them up. But th that's my opinion, and um, I think that th the teachings of morality and, and how our society should operate is is more um, appropriately taught in churches and in the home than in the halls of government. You you mentioned and I like I like your analysis of of the marriage issue because you're saying in in its base form it's a contract between 
two people. And I agree with that. Historically, a contract is founded in state law, not federal law. So if, I, if I'm uh, entering into a contract with, with a, another party here in Yuma and, then, and there's an issue with that contract, my first remedy is to file a lawsuit in Superior Court in Yuma County, a state court. And I'm going to go up that, that state court route, meaning I will continue to litigate. If, if I lose in the first round, then I'm going to appeal to the Arizona Court of Appeals. If I lose there, then I'm going to appeal to the Arizona Supreme Court. I'm not going to the United States Supreme Court. I'm not going to federal district court for the federal government. Uh, a contract is a state law issue and always has been. And I think we're arguing pretty close to the same thing here when we talk about Roe v. Wade and we're talking about Obergefell, Sean. And, and I, I say that because I believe that's what Justice Thomas is saying. He's saying, I'm giving the power or we're giving the power back to the people. And I, what, I, what I understand him to say by that is the federal government should not be involved from le in legislating from the bench and these blanket laws or rights that we're giving through the Supreme Court is completely uncalled for, and it's it's really not based in the Constitution at all. Therefore, he's saying I'm gonna we're gonna give the power back to the people at the state level. If California wants to recognize a law that says you can abort a baby up to nine months or even beyond that baby being born, that's California's issue, and the Supreme Court or the federal government is not going to get involved in that because of this overturning of Roe v. Wade. That's really what it did is it just gave it back to the states. So you, as an individual that lives in the United States, has the opportunity to say, well, I really like that law, and I really want to live in a state that has a law like that, so I'm going to move my family to California. Maybe you don't like that. Or, Maybe the, the citizens of Arizona say oh, that is reprehensible. Any abortion after the time of conception is murder in the state of Arizona. I'm not saying that's what it is. I'm saying we could, through legislative means at the local level, put that into our state statutes. And therefore, if you're a person that likes to live in Mississippi because of the 15-week rule, then you have the opportunity or freedom to move to Mississippi. That's what that, in my opinion, that's what the founders wanted. They wanted the states to have the ability to legislate because it's closer to the people than a Supreme Court that are unelected uh, by the, the the populace, making making these overarching ru rulings or over overbearing rulings on the entire nation, saying, "Hey, just because Hawaii wants same-sex marriage or they want an abortion after nine months." or California does, that doesn't mean that Arizona does. Or it's the loud, loudest voices being um, yelled throughout the streets and, and in the protests, and they say, okay, we're going to do this. And essentially, we're turning over the power to nine people who are not elected, and we can't recall them. And also, it's, it's not even nine. It's really more like five because all you need is five people to make a decision. And, and regardless of the other four people's decision or justice's decision, that, those five people are going to make the law of the land and interpret the Constitution, and that's what it's been. And a lot of these cases that are decided on a 5-4 um, split, you, you see, okay, there's five people that are deciding what the Constitution is for the rest of us. And... and enacting rights for certain individuals which have the effect of trampling on the rights of the rest of us. Because if I must 
um, honor such and such contract in my business. Otherwise, I am being discriminatory or otherwise I am um, going to abuse some some civil rights act law then and I'm subject to a lawsuit or other type of punishment or even um, criminal charges well then that's taking away my right to operate my property the way I see fit and I I think that fails that three-pronged test of is this right necessary to defend that person's life liberty and property and I would say no I'd say it's the opposite it's actually impeding on my right of liberty and property when you continually grant constitutional rights, in quotes, um, to individuals and for um, actions that were not explicitly stated in the Constitution or adopted by amendment after the Constitution was written. And I think that's where the line is really gray because over time what's happened, especially through Roe v. Wade, Casey, uh, Obergefell, the court has, has done that. They've said well, and they say that in their analysis, well, this really isn't in the Constitution, but we're going to tuck it under this that is in the Constitution, the right to privacy or the right to uh, contract or the right to uh, tax, for example, with the Obamacare um, opinion. Th- that's what they tuck it. They'll, they'll look for a, a clause in the, in the Constitution, and, and they'll say, well, th- it fits under this broadly, Therefore, we're going to make it binding on all states. And, and that's what I take issue with. In reality, the founders of our nation, they wanted the states to be independent in the sense that they were designed to be legislative laboratories. So if Montana wants to do something, uh, it's, it's free to do that and, and legislate in a way that they, they want. And what we're seeing now is a huge migration to states like Tennessee, Florida, uh, Mississippi. These are more conservative, conservative-like states. And my argument here is that it's because people want to live in in states that provide more of their value system being protected. So those that want to go to Florida because they're not happy with the way that uh, Disney is trying to introduce woke ideology into their school system and backing that train um, in Florida and legislation in Florida. And, and then you see uh, DeSantis get up and say, yeah, that's not going to happen. We're going to do the opposite legislation in our state to make sure that families are protected and children are protected and, and fight against these different ideologies. So if, I, if I'm a person that feels oppressed in my particular state, maybe I'm in California or maybe I'm in Arizona or Texas, wherever I'm living, and I'm really liking what Florida is doing, and the way that they're structuring their their statutory protections of their people or their populace, then I'm going to think long and hard about actually moving my family over there because I want to be part of that. Or better yet, elect representatives that are like-minded to the representatives of those in, in Florida and make Arizona be a pattern of Florida because we've seen parts of the pattern of what they've done in Florida work and then we could take parts that don't work and we say okay good we saw what worked and didn't work in in your state we're going to try a different version in our state and see how it works and as you continue to do that you continue to build upon this collaboration of good ideas until you have the best ideas for the people that live in that state. And that it becomes a competing it's almost like a capitalistic uh, idea here and that's good. 
That's good because now we have states competing against each other in a healthy way, not not to the detriment of those states. But like you mentioned, Florida might be doing this, and Arizona says, "Well, I don't. I like parts of that, but I don't like the whole thing because of the the result." I get to see how Florida is is panning out and what they've done in those legislative bodies and watch it for a little bit and now we can actually implement that in our state or we don't have to that's the beauty of our united states is is this beautiful uh legislative laboratory of of experiments we're experimenting in every state and what's the supreme court's role in all this merely just to say whether a law that's implemented in a state is constitutional or not based on the Constitution, not something they read into the Constitution or they hope to read in or or something that aligns with their political beliefs. We've got to go to a break. This is the Life, Death, and Law, 560 AM, KBLU. We'll be right back. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back. This is Life, Death, and the Law. I'm Sean Garner, attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. I'm here with Adam Hanson, who is also an attorney of the firm, and uh, we dedicate our lives to helping people get their affairs in order. Uh, Today, we're talking about how the Supreme Court has done an excellent job about getting our country's affairs in order. And uh, so there are a couple cases that came down last week that are really going to be seminal cases because they uphold certain constitutional rights and they throw out other made-up rights that are not constitutional. So first of all, let's start off with um, the let, let, let's start off with the Supreme Court decision about prayer. What, before you do that, Sean, I just want to jump in here and say why why are we why are you doing this? Because of the clamor and the outcry as to how bad Dobbs was and, and, and the media is portraying Justice Thomas as the evil of all the world and things like that. And I think it's important for us to have some perspective here. What the court did was say, no, it's not our job to legislate from the bench. It's our job to interpret the Constitution. If it's not in the Constitution, then it's not a constitutionally protected right. We're not going to bake that into the Constitution. Right. So. The Supreme Court, it was originally organized um, in the Constitution by our Founding Fathers to interpret the Constitution. And the Founding Fathers said, okay, these rights exist, and we need a court that is going to be able to read these rights, interpret these rights, and and if any law um, is going to infringe upon these rights, then the Supreme Court needs to be able to strike it down. So when people ask, does the Supreme Court make law? Yes, it does. Legislatures enact statutes, but the Supreme Court runs it through the filter of the Constitution and says, is that statute constitutional? The, the, the Constitution upholds our right to life, liberty, and property. Those are our fundamental rights. And if that law doesn't infringe upon those rights or the specific other rights that are written into the Constitution, then um, that law can stand. If it does infringe upon those rights, then that law cannot stand. And by the very act of um, writing an opinion that the law is unconstitutional, then the law cannot be enforced, and that is in itself law. So getting back to the the Bremerton case that uh, upheld the right to free speech in in a high school context, and Sean's going to – what I thought was really interesting, Sean, as you said – 
if we just look at the the holdings on these cases, you'll see clear as day what the court is doing here. They're they're really cutting through and making making it crystal clear that if it's not in the Constitution, then we're not going to opine on it. We're not going to make these rules that are are binding on all states. So for the past 50 years, beginning with Roe, I think Roe started this slippery slope of creating new rights that did not exist in the Constitution. And so beginning with Roe, they created the right that was nowhere referenced in the Constitution that a woman had the right to an abortion. And, uh, you know, that's not a right. Whether or not a state wants to make a law on that, that's up to the representatives in that state. There's also rights that are listed in the Constitution, such as um, the free exercise of speech and the right to assemble and uh, observance of religion and, and to practice religion. So we've got here this case. It's Joseph Kennedy. He was a high school football coach. And what he wanted to do was kneel down um, after the game and offer a quiet personal prayer. And he got fired for that. And so he sued and it went up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court held that and they just read out right out of the Constitution. The free exercise and speech clause of the First Amendment protects an individual engaging in personal religious observance from government reprisal. The Constitution neither mandates nor permits the government to suppress such religious expression. There it is. And you can read the rest of, I think this uh, opinion here is 75 pages. But if you stopped right there, the Supreme Court did its job. The it, this this in this case it was um, the school district that had interpreted prayer as exercising religion in violation of separation of church and state, and that was incorrect and and the court just comes out and says here's what this here's what the constitution says and therefore your application of the law as a governing body is invalid it infringes upon his personal right and therefore he can pray you cannot fire him for doing that what about the uh the recent case of dobbs so dobbs is is wonderfully written um it's written by Justice Alito, although I kind of wish that it would have been um, Justice Thomas that wrote it, just because he's been so outspoken about how the Supreme Court has been abusing its power for decades and legislating from the bench and creating rights and, and, and calling them constitutional rights, when in, in reality they're not. But it was Justice Alito that wrote it, and he's a, he's a fantastic justice, so that's great. But what it says, uh, let me pull it up here, it talks about Mississippi's law. It was the Gestational Act, and it protects um, infants, uh, fetuses, that uh, have... Uh, the viability of life, I would argue, well, right after a certain time. Yeah, that have developed beyond 15 weeks. And so anything after 15 weeks, anything that would cause an abortion after 15 weeks was illegal. And the court held that the Constitution does not confer a right to an abortion. That Roe and Casey, which are the seminal cases that provide that constitutional right, they, they, they created it out of thin air, uh, are overruled. And the authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people. How can you get upset at that? The authority to regulate abortion is returned to the people and their elected representatives. The critical question is whether the Constitution, properly understood, 
confers a right to obtain an abortion. Casey's controlling opinion skipped over that question and reaffirmed Roe Roe solely on the basis of stare decisis. Now you've explained that stare decisis is uh, when the court gives deference to prior opinions, but that doesn't mean that the court doesn't review prior opinions. And in fact, if that was the case, then once an opinion was made on any issue, it could never be reviewed by the Supreme Court, and we'd have nine justices that uh, had a lot of free time on their hands. But that is not the case. And so the court reviewed this case and looked into the constitutionality and the application of those arguments in both uh, Casey and Roe v. Wade, and they determined they didn't have solid grounds in um, constitutional support for creating those rights. And so the rights, therefore, don't exist, and the laws are returned back to the democratic process, which is voting in representatives to make laws that represent the people's wishes. Another seminal case that came down just last week um, came from New York. Uh, New York is making actually laws that are working out very favorable to constitutional rights because their laws are so absurd that it's easy for the justices <laughs> to look at them and say, no, that's not constitutional, and, and we're going to make sure that the rest of the nation knows it's that so you... It's so funny. It's almost, they're like... it's. What are you trying to do here, you dumb dumb? Yeah, well, and, and thank you, New York, for for being pushing the envelope. Yeah, yeah, so egregiously wrong that the issue has to go to the Supreme Court, and the rest of the states can give be given the heads up that you can't go and take away um, rights that are in the Constitution just by enacting a statute. Now, the Constitution can be changed, and it has been twenty-seven times. Well, the first time it was with the 10 amendments in the Bill of Rights, but then uh, 17 times after that. So it can be changed, but it has to go through the proper process to be changed. You can't just take away a right that is enumerated in the Constitution uh, by creating a statute that uh, disallows you to to do the right that that is discussed. And, And in this case, the state of New York made it a crime to possess a firearm without a license, whether inside or outside your home. And so there were two individuals that they wanted to uh, carry firearms, and they applied for a permit to carry firearms. And the state of New York says, no, you don't have a compelling reason to to, uh, carry firearms. And they said, well, we live in New York, so uh, it's dangerous, and we want to protect ourselves. They said, that's not a compelling reason. And uh, what the court held was New York's proper cause requirement violated the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens uh, with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms uh, in public for self-defense. And again, this opinion here is 135 pages, but you could stop right there. Read the Second Amendment, read the law, it violates it. Okay, the law is invalid. And... uh, that's how easy it can be. I don't, I don't understand why people are so upset that <clears throat> the Constitution, which is a sacred document, which is, it should be credited for the prosperity that we've enjoyed over the past 245 years, um, should be condemned and should be overruled by these, these state laws. So the court is doing the proper thing by saying, no, the, the Constitution is going to be honored 
it's going to be read and interpreted for the words that are in it and we're not going to read a bunch of stuff in between the lines because we're so much smarter than anybody else out there that you can't tell how this interpretation is supposed to be done and create laws that or rights that don't exist. This Independence Day, what I'm going to invite you to do, those that are listening, is just exercise your right to free speech. These ideas, you might, we might disagree on things, but I want you to uh, be cognizant of the fact that you get to, you have the freedom in the United States to say that. You get to say what you think, and that's crucial. Sometimes it's messy, and that's the idea of free speech. We have to have the ability to speak our minds to each other. And through that process, it might be uncomfortable, it might be messy, but through that process is how we come to conclusions and how we get things worked out. And that's what our founding fathers did. They did not agree on everything. Most of what they they did was fight, and they would debate these issues in, in the uh, Constitutional Convention. And what came out of that was one of the greatest documents in in our world. And every country in our in our world looks to us because of our constitution and there's a reason for it it was because of that debate that happened and the arguments that happened and the ability for men and women to speak their mind of what they really thought and and maybe people were offended maybe their feelings were hurt but at the end of the day you have to get it out there and and work through those issues and if you say nothing at all then nothing gets done this has been Life, Death, and the Law. Happy Independence Day. We'll talk to you next week. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Decent Garner, and Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.